Now is our time in the Word of God. If you have your Bible, why don't you grab that at this time? Open up to the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. If you have a phone or a device where you have a Bible app, this would be one of those messages where it'd be good to have your Bible open and following along uh, with us. And uh, as we do that, before we uh, turn to the uh, Word of the Lord, why don't we turn to the Lord of the uh, the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, look at this text. Thank you for preserving these words that we might learn from you today. Open up our eyes, our hearts, our ears, and uh, take away anything that would prevent us from listening carefully to you, Holy Spirit. And then also as we go, take away any stumbling block from our path uh, to prevent us from obeying you. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? For the glory of your beautiful name, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, probably one of the earliest viral videos out there uh, came out in 2004 on YouTube. It uh, showed a guy named Lee Page, a drug enforcement officer, and uh, he was talking to a room full of Florida teenagers about the dangers of guns. Uh, in fact, he held up his gun, a pistol, and he said, I'm the only one in this room professional enough to carry this. Uh, he, he stressed the dangers of guns. He, he, he implored them never to play with guns. He, he, he pointed out that his gun was unloaded and safe. And um, that was quickly disproven uh, when the gun accidentally discharged as soon as he put it away. Uh, Officer Lee Page literally shot himself in the foot. Uh, the crowd fell into a stunned silence as he began limping around the front of the classroom. Uh, and then in the video, he tries to kind of regroup and continue that lesson with them uh, in his demonstration by asking one of his assistants, who was also there, to then hand him his assault rifle. Well, that caused the crowd to uh, break out into a frenzy of nervousness. He had lost all credibility at that point. Uh, the video came out, and he quickly became the target of jokes, derision, ridicule, and disparaging comments all across the World Wide Web. It, it eventually made him so infamous that he, he had to give up his undercover drug work, and Officer Lee Page's carelessness uh, cost him his career. There is good reason, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, why in our culture a common colloquialism is do not shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> now, I'm sure those of you watching online or those of you gathered here today have never shot yourself in the foot, literally, at least I hope you haven't. But I imagine that if we're honest with our own hearts this morning, in a metaf metaphorical sense, we can all say that we have all experienced self-inflicted pain. Through our own foolishness, indifference, or other poor decisions, to put it another way, sometimes I can be my own worst enemy. We can be our own worst enemies. We have a frightening capacity to destroy ourselves. That is true on an individual level. Often that's true on an organizational level. That can even be true on a national level. Why do we destroy ourselves? Why do we do that? How do we avoid that? I think that's the lesson found in 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, as I was preparing this message, uh, you know, I thought people are going to ask me, Pastor Dave, what in the world does this obscure story from 1 Kings that I probably never read in my whole life have anything to do in relevance with my current situation? Well, I think you're going to be surprised that there are actually some really timely lessons here. The year is 931 B.C., 
uh, as they say previously on our sermon series, we saw in chapter 11 of the book of 1 Kings, uh, the tragic end to the reign of Solomon, Israel's uh, great golden aged king. If you remember, we also saw last time there was a prophecy that was given uh, that the kingdom of Israel would eventually be divided. And here in this passage today, we will see how in earthly terms that division actually took place, how it played out in the, in the earthly realm. And here in this passage, we're going to be introduced to two main characters, Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's military leaders, and then Rehoboam, which was Solomon's son, David's grandson. And you're going to see three things today. You're going to see the folly of Rehoboam, the sin of Jeroboam, and you're going to see the word from the prophet of God. The folly of Rehoboam, the sin of Jeroboam, the word from the prophet of God. The first one's a lesson in leadership. The second one's really a lesson about worship. And the third one is a lesson for all of us about who's really in control. Pick it up with me, if you would, in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 1. If you're with me, say amen. It says, King Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. Let's pause there. We begin here as Solomon is dead. We see this newly crowned king, a man named Rehoboam, goes to a city named Shechem. It's a city of political significance. It's located about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Rehoboam goes there hoping to consolidate all of his power with all of the people. Jeroboam, on the other hand, he had been a military leader under the kingship of Solomon, but he fled to where? Did you notice? To Egypt. I want you to remember that because it's important for later on in the story. Decades prior, Jeroboam had fled down to Egypt from Solomon. Solomon was trying to kill him because he uh, felt threatened by Jeroboam's influence. And so he heard about this. Solomon then dies. Jeroboam hears about the fact that Solomon is dead. And then Jeroboam uh, gets word to return. Take a look at verse 3. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, verse 4, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Pause there. Here Jeroboam comes with this large delegation with a long list of demands. Verse 4 sounds a little bit like the first round of negotiations in a union contract. Speaking on behalf of the northern tribes, Jeroboam says, listen, we want better working conditions. We want higher pay. We want lower taxes. We want more vacation time. And please reimburse us for our iPhones. It seems like Jeroboam's trying to provoke a conflict here. Uh, He criticizes Solomon. Did you see that? He criticizes the previous regime. Uh, Whether or not there's any truth to that accusation, we actually don't believe it's true. But it's clear here that Jeroboam has no intention to submit to the rule of God's anointed, the son of David, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. And so Jeroboam isn't asking here. He's demanding. Rehoboam hears these things in verse 5. He says, listen, can you give me a few days and I I need to think this over. I'll get back to you. The choice that King Rehoboam faces is pretty simple, I guess. He can either go easy on the people as their leader or he can go hard on the people as their, their leader. And so he asks for some time to think it over. And in a wise move, he asks for some advisors to come to him and help him make this decision And his um, advisors come in two groups. The younger generation comes, and then the older generation comes, and they actually give him completely contradictory advice. 
First, it says in verse 6, he takes counsel with the elders, uh, Rehoboam being about 41 years old at this time. It says in verse 6, Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? Verse 7, they replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. The advice of the older generation was not to oppress the people, not to give them excessive taxation, not to lay on them excessive demands. The older generation is wise. Commentator Richard Phillips says, the old men counseled a course of godly humility, servant leadership, and moderation in his exercise of power. The advice, however, that he receives from the younger generation is exactly the opposite. Look with me at verse 10. It says, The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. Make our yoke lighter. Now tell them this, quote, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Wow. The younger generation calls for higher taxes and more demands, bigger gov government, and harder working conditions. Their language is rude, it's abusive, it's, it's a sign of their spiritual immaturity. Biblically speaking, they actually sound just like Pharaoh from Exodus chapter 5. Same exact kind of language here. There's two opinions. There's the younger generation, there's the older generation. And the question we've got to ask is, who's Rehoboam going to listen to? Well, it says tragically in verse 14, he followed the advice of the young men. And he said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people. Sad. The king did not listen to the people. Now, there may be a political lesson for us that we're not going to get in there today, but here's what happens back then in verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king and said this, look, 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 what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. You're on your own, Rehoboam. They went on Twitter and tweeted out, hashtag, not my president. They choose politically an act of secession. Relationally, they have contempt for this king, for David's grandson, Rehoboam. They refuse to honor him. Rehoboam disregards the wisdom of the older generation, and this foolish choice causes him and Israel problems for generations and centuries to come. And from now on, Israel will be divided with ten tribes in the north and two in the south. The tragic irony, I think, to Rehoboam's life is that he strived for such a high and lofty and prideful position of significance and power, and yet he's lost it all. Most people, I would guess, if you're listening today, have rarely heard a message on King Rehoboam. See, Rehoboam shot himself in the foot. How does that apply to us, right? Well, I think... There's a simple lesson here that applies transculturally, and the lesson is just simply this. Leadership is an opportunity to serve. Leadership is an opportunity to serve. For any of us who have any kind of position of authority, for, 
any of us here today who have any kind of position of power, uh, prestige at work or at school or at home or at the office or wherever, here's what this means. When things are going well under your care, under your umbrella, when you sit at the head of the conference table, when you, when you drive up and you look at your beautiful house, when you're given that kind of influence, when you look in your new car and you smell that new car smell, when you, when, you, when you get that invitation to go to that banquet that you've been waiting to get, or when you sign that deal and there's a big check attached because you're responsible for making that deal happen because you've done such a good job, when you get that promotion, when you win that award and you're recognized for something and you got that feeling inside that's like, I got it going on, In that moment when your pride wells up inside of you, I want you to remember that leadership is an opportunity to serve. It's a stewardship. We are managers. We are allowed by God to have influence in our lives. And God expects us never to exploit those that are underneath of us. Instead, we are to serve those under the umbrella of our care. And we're accountable. Some of you in this room, you hold everyone else accountable all the time during the week. But did you know that you're accountable to someone too? And one day there's a great accounting coming for all of us. And here Rehoboam has everything taken away. If we do not remember this lesson of leadership that it's an opportunity to serve, we will shoot ourselves in the foot. Movement two. Meanwhile in the north, King Jeroboam, sets up Shechem to be their new capital, not Jerusalem. And Jeroboam, you need to know, is a fearful and he's an insecure leader and an insecure man. He becomes very frightened. Look at verse 27. He says, if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they're going to give their allegiance again over to their Lord, Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And so here's his big decision. It says, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. Pause there at verse 30. Now, the Jews, they did not worship statues or images. That was forbidden. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. The living God is too majestic to ever be represented by a statue. And and they worshiped the invisible God. So this was a sin. But here's the other question. Where have we seen golden calves before? If you're familiar with the scriptural story, then all kinds of bells and whistles are going off in your mind going, well, wait a minute. This sounds like the book of Exodus. These are the same exact words that Aaron used when Moses came down from the mountain and he had fashioned a golden calf for the people of Israel back then. And you remember where Jeroboam spent all that time? In Egypt. He had been influenced by the paganism of that culture. And so here he sounds just like the book of Exodus. You know, Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself. It only rhymes. Jeroboam found plenty of bulls and calves in Egypt, and he's been influenced by that kind of culture. And here we have the golden calf again, but now it's not one, it's two. One in the north, one in the south. Why does he do this? The answer, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is Jeroboam uses religion as a way to control people. 
Pastor Philip Ryken said he knew as their new king, if he wanted to capture their hearts, he would need to control their worship. And so he ties together politically a religious system, which is a big problem. This is a false religious system. Jeroboam gets his own priests, not Levites, by the way. He, he's got his own location, not Jerusalem, by the way. He's got his own temples in the north and in the south, not where God had ordained. He's even got his own calendar. It says in verses 31 to 33, he sets up a certain month and, and he devises these things in verse 26. It says, from his own heart. Notice that phrase. In other words, Jeroboam does not seek the will of God for this in prayer. Jeroboam does not gather to himself godly counsel here. He certainly doesn't consult the law of God for this idea. This comes from his own heart. This was his own idea. But you can't do that. You can't just set up your own times and set up your own city and set up your own worship system and set up your own idols and set up your own altars for your own, for your own prerogative. Don't miss the audacity of this. Imagine if, imagine if I got up here today and said, church body, listen, Christmas is coming up in a few months, December 25th. This year, we're going to change it up a little bit. This year, we're not going to celebrate Christmas in December. This year, we're going to move Christmas to July, and we're not going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. This year, we're going to celebrate Pastor Dave's birthday in July. That's how we're going to roll this. I mean, that's kind of what Jeroboam is doing here. Jeroboam has this idolatrous idea and then he institutionalizes it as the leader. And from this point on, there will not just be two nations, there will now be two religions. The king disobeys God's word. Now here's where things get heated up and this is a good story, I love a good story. At this point in the narrative, God sends a prophet to address the situation. And if you're wondering how God is working in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, he is not working through these kings. He is working through the prophets that he raises up to share his word. We meet a prophet in chapter 13 and verse 1. Take a look. It says, By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar. He catches the king in the very act of this false worship. He walks up. The man of God is there. And look what it says here. He's standing by the altar, verse 1, to make an offering, verse 2. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings right here. Human bones will be burned on you. Here's this prophecy that looks forward into the future. A couple hundred years, he names Josiah by name. It's unbelievable. And he pronounces this oracle of judgment. Jeroboam hears this, and his response to this is anger. Jeroboam is fuming mad. This is sometimes what ungodly governments do to religious leaders. They attempt to shut them down. Verse 4, when King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, what? Seize him. He, inst he instructs his men to go get the prophet. But here's what happens. Right in the middle of his giving this command, you got to just imagine this scene. Just put yourself in the scene for a second. Here's this arrogant leader coming against the prophet of God. And suddenly he points at him. And then out of nowhere, it says this in the text, but the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up 
so that he could not pull it back. Immediately, his hand dries up and freezes, whether this was a medical condition where he had a muscle spasm or nervous rigidity or he was paralyzed instantly, we really don't know. What we do know is this is the same hand he used to lift up against the house of Solomon in 1 Kings 11.31. And it's the same hand he uses to point to seize the prophet of God here. This hand that he has used for ill is now useless. It's amazing, right? It says in the text that at this point, the altar actually cracks in half and the very power of God descends on this place. Now, at this point, the chastisement stops, right? At this point, the, 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 the cohorts are going, boss, you don't want us to seize them anymore, right? The party's over. Put your drinks down. We're not going to do this anymore. Like this. We've been interrupted by the Lord Almighty himself. Well, what happens next is Jeroboam asks this prophet to pray for his hand. Look at verse 6. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand will be restored, which at first seems like a humble and wise and contrite idea. But you got to notice the details here. He doesn't actually pray for himself. Instead, he asks someone else to pray for him. Did you notice that? He's very dependent on this prophet to intercede. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with intercession. I mean, you know, we will pray for you, but we're happy to intercede. But in this case, if you read through the lines here, if you read carefully, you see that the reason he asked this man of God to pray was because Jeroboam had no personal relationship with the living God. Whenever Jeroboam talks about the Lord, it's always the Lord your God. He never says the Lord our God. And so here we learn that Jeroboam actually doesn't know the living God. And we see here that he doesn't want to even pursue the living God. He just wants relief from the consequences of his sin. And so here's what happens. Look at verse 6. It says, so the man of God interceded with the Lord. And what happens? And the king's hand was restored as it was before. Instantly, in a moment, the power of God descends, reverses this curse, and he is now healed. Now at this point, the readers are reading this and we are wondering, what will Jeroboam's reaction to this be? I mean, you know, he's instantly cursed. He's instantly healed. How is he going to respond to this hand being restored? Now after that, you would think you would change your ways. You would think you would say, okay, you know, the gig is up. Instead, he offers this prophet some money. Instead, he offers some kind of reward, some kind of payment for this healing. He See, Jeroboam thinks of religion as something that can be bought and sold, as something that he can use for his own ends. The man of God hears this and tells him in verses 8 through 10, listen, you can offer me whatever you want. I'm not for sale. Keep your money. And he just leaves. Philip Ryken says, in answer to prayer, his body was healed. But for the neglect of repentance, his soul was never saved. The chapter 13 goes on to tell a longer story, which I don't have time to tell you here, but the end of 13 gives a good summary. 33 says, even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. But once more, appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. Just print out your ordination certificate on the internet. That's fine. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam. 
that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And here we see his end. And like Rehoboam, Jeroboam also shoots himself in the foot. I think the lesson that we learn here from the second movement, the lesson from King Jeroboam, is that we must come to worship God in the manner in which he has instructed us to come to worship him. There is tremendous pressure right now on, in our nation and on the clergy because Christianity is, is a message that is not very tender toward those that may not agree. And there is a tremendous temptation to change Christianity in order to become more palatable to the culture around us. Friends, that would be a tragic mistake. Never change the faith because of the pressure of the culture. This is the sin of Jeroboam. God says he's wicked. You know why he's wicked? He's trying to syncretize the religious systems around him and meld them together with the true faith of the one true God. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like all okay. We kind of like all worship the same thing, right? He blends them together so that he becomes more tolerant. Does that sound familiar? Isn't this what so many people do today? Everywhere I look, I, people talk to me, you know, Pastor Dave, that's cool. You got your Christian thing. I appreciate what you're doing. You're doing good in the community and so forth. But listen, I have my own higher power. I, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm sure you've heard this way of thinking. It's everywhere. The only problem is our society might approve of that, but God does not. You need to know that Jeroboam is severely chastised by God for changing the religion of the one true God, the God of Israel. He's actually cursed by God. The reason is because God ordained the temple. God ordained the Levites. God ordained Jerusalem. God ordained Mount Moriah. God said, this is where I'm going to meet with you. And God gave very specific instructions on how his people were to come to him and worship. And who are you, Jeroboam, to insert your opinion? We must come to God the way that he has instructed for us to worship him. Now, we know that God was setting up a system and everything about this system was pointing forward toward the great son of Solomon, toward the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything had to be just so, so that that picture never got disturbed whatsoever. But the lesson applies to us today. We must worship God the way he has instructed us to worship him. Commenting on the modern evangelical church, Dr. Sam Storms said this, quote, what bothers me is the consistent and somewhat humanistic message of human potential, personal fulfillment, and hope for prosperity, together with an obsession for self-esteem that is proclaimed from pulpits that rarely hear the echo of solid exegesis or communication of the content of Holy Scripture. We have to be very discerning with who or what we are listening to when you turn on television that says it's Christian television. It may or may not have a sound message. We must hold to sound doctrine. We must believe and, and stand firm with our teaching that there is only one place where any and every sin can be forgiven at the cross of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we've fallen into the sin of Jeroboam who shot himself in the foot. And so we see the division of the nation and how that occurred, and it all seems so hopeless and it all seems so dark. And it would be if it were not for the word from the prophet of God. 
See, back in chapter 12, when Jeroboam first decided and told Rehoboam he was rebelling against him and he was going to take 10 tribes with him, and, and they tweeted out, hashtag not my president. When that happened, Rehoboam's first reaction after diplomacy had failed was to resort to using military force. And so he got together uh, an army of 180,000 men to go to war against the 10 tribes of the north because he didn't want to just rule the two tribes in the south. He wanted to rule all 12 tribes. And the stage was set for an all-out civil war. And that's when God, in his mercy, intervenes and sends a prophet, a different prophet this time. This time his name is Shimei. Circle back to chapter 12, verse 22. But the word of God came to Shimei, the man of God. This is the message. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you. For this is my doing. For this is my doing. Four words. For this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. Now, as I was preparing and praying and studying this passage this week to give it to you, the four words that stuck out to me in these three chapters from 1 Kings were those four words. This is my doing. The surprising ending to the story of chaos and division is that God actually tells us that he's in complete control here. He's still the one orchestrating history, isn't he? Yes, the two kings were responsible for their poor decisions. Yes, there are consequences. Yes, they both shot themselves in the foot. Yes, a nation that is divided against itself is going to be a difficult scenario. Yes, this was an act of God's justice. But God is still on the throne saying, this is actually my doing. God is not going to allow his kingdom or his people to be totally destroyed for he has made us promises and he has every intention to fulfill them. In other words, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, you need to recognize that you may be a king, but you are not the king. Man, that's such good news. Even in the midst of the circumstances we face right now, that are completely outside of our control. We can still rest in our sovereign God. And he says, I have never taken my hand off the wheel, not for a second. You got to know that I'm on my throne and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That's what the people of God need in divided times. We need to look around at all the chaos that's all around us. And we need to hear God saying, I'm actually still at work here. I'm actually still doing something here. I have not taken my hand off the wheel. There's a greater allegiance than the allegiance to the south and to the north and to Rehoboam and to Jeroboam. There's a greater allegiance to the red states or to the blue states too. There's a king above all those kings and he's higher than all other rulers. We must remember that we serve a greater king. We also must remember where we place our hope. The scriptures teach us that our God stands above and is in complete control of everyone and everything. He is supreme in power, rank, and authority. Whether you lean left or whether you lean right, when you watch the debate on Tuesday night, I do not want you to forget 
that if there was a pyramid organizational chart that described the universe, the two guys debating on that stage are not at the top of the chart. Psalm 96.10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. The psalmist, and I think our passage to today, declares this one truth to all of the other nations, saying in a sense, sorry about your God, but our God reigns. It's not human leaders who rule. It is not the president of the United States who rules. It is not circumstances which rule. It is not even mankind which rules. It is the God of heaven which rules. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And in the midst of all the chaos around us, brothers and sisters, in the midst of all the division that we see every day, God says to you and me, this is my doing. Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this ancient text of chaos and division that seems to jump right off the page and speak to our hearts right where we are this morning. This truth sounds good to us on Sunday, but I pray that we would also remember this truth on Wednesday. I pray that this would impact us during the week and that we might remember that you are the one in whom we hope, you are the one in whom we place our trust, and ultimately our safety and our security can be found in Christ alone. Now, Lord, as we think about a church that are full of people that see opportunities for leadership as serving, we imagine a church that could be really used by you during this time. When we think about a church full of people that is full of saints who are willing to worship you exactly the way you've instructed us to worship you, we imagine a church that's able to make a difference in our culture. And when we imagine a church that's full of people that remember that you are at the very top of the universe and that all things are under your control, we imagine that we would offer comfort and hope to a world that so desperately needs it. And so, Lord, would you help us to be that church? Would you help us to place our faith right now today in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen.